Winterheart Studios, I'm Elgin Davis, and this is the More Human Podcast. Welcome to episode 6 of the More Human Podcast. So great to have you here. This is a special episode because in this episode I'm having a conversation with fellow podcaster Audrey Thorne, who is the host of the Lights Camera Analysis Podcast. Alright, so since this episode is going to be a little bit longer, we'll get right into the first segment, Smell the Flowers. So I chose two entries for this week. The first one comes from at hello it's Stephanie on Instagram. And she says, one thing that she loves about humans is their ability to show love even after they've been hurt themselves. Right on. I don't know. That's that's such a great thing to love about humans. I love that too. Resilience is definitely a very strong trait that I hope all of us are cultivating more of, you know, through this podcast and beyond. So that's awesome. The second entry I chose for this week's Smell the Flowers segment is from Tyler, and it's a voice message. So this is what Tyler said. I think one of my favorite things about people is that we always have something we can talk about. No matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter where you come from, no matter what your upbringing is, you have a story. And I think it's amazing that each person's story is so unique and all these different people you can talk to, they're all gonna have different stories to tell. All you have to be willing to do is listen. Thanks so much for that, Tyler. I really appreciate you sending in a voice message and I'm glad that I could share it. And it actually ties in really well to what we're gonna talk about today in this week's episode. Since this week's episode is a conversation, it's a little bit longer than the normal episodes of me talking to myself in a closet. So I added a little break in the middle of the episode in case you want to listen to this in two parts. But recording this after having the conversation, it's an awesome episode. I really hope that you enjoy it. And I also want to give a little bit of a content warning. So we start to talk about more serious topics than we've talked about on the podcast so far, such as sexual abuse, mental illness, um, things that Hollywood portrays that might be a little triggering for some listeners. So I just wanted to mention that ahead of time. Media and cinema are oftentimes forms of escapism for many viewers, a fabricated fantasy where the rules are different and the world works in a way that makes sense to tell a good story. When it comes to mental and emotional health, it's a really fine line to walk when representing it in films and TV shows. It's important not to make light of these things, but it's also important to tell honest, relatable, and entertaining stories that the viewers will find value in. There's also a constant struggle between reinforcing or supporting current cultural norms and redefining them with what the creator sees as better ideals. Cinema goes a long way in inspiring and influencing the minds of its audience, for better or for worse. So I'm here this week for episode 6 of the More Human podcast with our first ever guest on the show. Today I'm joined by Audrey, host of the Lights Camera Analysis podcast, where each week she has really insightful and in-depth conversations about ideas and lessons that can be learned through the lens of film. Welcome to the show, Audrey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about mental health in Hollywood. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm still by myself in a closet, but I'm at least not talking to myself uh, in a closet. So (laughs) (laughs) it's a step in the right direction. Okay, so, so far in the podcast, we've been exploring a lot about how human emotions work and how to use them to create a more mentally and emotionally healthy life for ourselves. Now, I'm not someone who watches many movies, but since your work takes a lot of film and really puts them under the microscope, what would your general take be on how mental and emotional health is represented in Hollywood today? 
I'd say it's pretty bad. Um, it's pretty inaccurate. Most of these films are written, directed, and acted by people who don't suffer from the mental and emotional health issues that they discuss if they talk specifically about mental health issues. But they also tend to reinforce a lot of repression, a lot of that kind of thing. And we also see a lot of misrepresentation of trauma and the effects of trauma. Films like to downplay the traumatic effects of things like war, domestic violence, rape, and losing a loved one. And they like to use those types of things as plot points instead of actually dealing with them authentically. Another thing is that we see a lot of mental health struggles written, yeah, as a, in, in hopes of winning the cast acclaim for their pseudo-realistic portrayal of someone with a mental health issue rather than making a statement or for the sake of the thing itself. Because the industry is really about making money or getting acclaim. It's not about being an activist. Right, right. Okay, so I guess a follow-up question to that, in like, I guess, more specific ways, how has popular film culture helped and or hurt the people with these different mental health situations it claims to be representing? It really depends on what kind of mental health situation we look at. I've seen some tasteful representations of people with depression, anorexia, anxiety, PTSD, autism, and other mental health situations. And some of them can make a viewer who's going through similar things feel understood. These better representations offer a trigger for more complex conversations about mental health and ableism in society. The ways that we cause neurodiverse people more pain by structuring society you know, the way that we do. But that's not most of those representations. Most representations end up romanticizing these mental health situations or villainizing them or infantilizing someone for their neurodivergence. I'm thinking in terms of these not as accurate representations. I'm thinking of Rain Man. I'm thinking of Joker that came out just this year. Thinking of Tom Hanks's Forrest Gump. All the way back to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Shining. But there are countless more. If you were to, at random, pick a movie and say, how did this represent mental health? I would probably say poorly. Yeah, I actually watched Rain Man for the first time, uh, I think it was three or four days ago. And it kind of fell in line with exactly what you were just saying. I just thought about how, in the word that I, I found in a, in a review of the movie was narrow. The depiction of autism in that movie was very, very narrow. Oh. Um, they got like some of the, I guess, mannerisms and things like that down, but it's not the same for every person who has autism. It's a spectrum as um, science has come to, to discover. And they did not know that in 1988, I guess. So <laughs> it well, definitely shows to, itself. People love to do that all the time with Sherlock Holmes though. We treat autism a lot of the time as it's either someone who is considered like unable to take care of themselves at all or someone who basically has superpowers. Like those are the two ways that we see the entirety of the spectrum of autism represented on screen, which is ridiculous and crazy. Right. <laughs> Even though we know now that it's such a spectrum, we still lack representation for the most part outside of shows like Atypical. Right. And that actually makes me think, I guess, branching out a little bit more from cinema specifically, thinking about TV, Friends is one of my all-time favorite shows. And Monica on the show, she loves things to be clean and tidy. And people like to put her in the has OCD category. 
And then looking to the current moment, to the pandemic, like I think maybe a few weeks into the pandemic, I started seeing all of these memes like, oh, we need Monica. She's our OCD superhero, our pandemic superhero. And I was like, ah, I can't even explain to any of these people making this kind of content, like how harmful this is to people who actually have this disorder. I was just just kind of blown away that that's where it went because I never thought of Monica as having OCD, but apparently a lot of people do think that because maybe they don't understand exactly what an anxiety disorder is, or they're just not informed on mental health, mental illnesses in general. But thinking about stuff like that, I'm like, well, the representation does not help us at all right now in cinema and media in general. Yeah, yeah I, I think also art informs life and life informs art, right? So I hear people all the time talk about being OCD as if it means being clean. And it's so weird. And then we apply it to things like Monica and Friends, and then it cycles through and we end up creating characters who, yeah, are not a reflection of what an anxiety disorder is. And we don't know if it's supposed to be labeled OCD or not because the writers right. have no idea. Right, especially when it's used for jokes and things like that um, throughout the sitcom. Like, oh, she didn't want the pancakes stuck to the ceiling and she's freaking out. That's That must be what people who have OCD are like. It's like, not yeah. really. <laughs> um, that actually makes me think back to my own life in particular. So I used to like carry hand sanitizer all the time. I still do, especially during the pandemic, but this is, you know, decades before the pandemic. I used to carry hand sanitizer everywhere. I used to always wash my hands before I eat. It just like things that made sense to me. And a lot of people close to me were like, oh, you're so OCD. And I'm like, okay, now, now that I know, like you can't even be OCD. It's something that you can have. It's an illness that you can have. But there was no evidence of an anxiety disorder in my behavior. Um, yeah. But people who don't know any better will just continue to to use this terminology incorrectly and then kind of spread the misinformation to get us where we are today so yeah, yeah. and I mean I, very far I, remember, reaching. I remember coming to campus and people someone joking about how she was frustrated that she thought her roommate used her OCD as an excuse to get a single mm. and it's like no it's not an excuse it's an anxiety disorder like those are yeah. very different <laughs> things like it's 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 very emotionally difficult to deal with. It's not saying I'm neat, give me a single. It's very different things, but the understanding be- is is null because the information that we have is is so inaccurate. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Wow, that example is very, <laughs> very telling. Um, <laughs> not just of college culture, but of, I think, Western culture in general. But anyway, okay, so... I'm a bit of a squeaky wheel when it comes to this next concept, but one thing I always like to reiterate, because I think it's so important, is our understanding of emotional suppression and the dangers it poses to our mental and emotional health. So keeping in mind that emotional suppression has been ingrained in American culture and really Western culture for centuries, especially, you know, the classic example of men who are taught to be tough and not show emotion, women who are told not to be quote unquote so emotional or that they need to smile more or whatever else. What part would you say the film industry has played and is currently playing in reinforcing these kinds of uh, cultural norms? Yeah, so Hollywood is an industry. So it wants to sell films to the largest possible audience. And even though many people think of Hollywood as super liberal, they're trying to sell to everybody. 
And it's been like, there's there's statistical proof that it's easier to sell conservative films than it is to sell hyper-progressive films. So if you're trying to sell in the South, in the Bible Belt, you're going to have some trouble if you're trying to sell Juno. So we don't get a lot of Junos. We get a lot of really palatable movies that fit gender norms in a lot of different ways. And since the 1950s, cinema has actually largely been targeted at men, assuming that women will watch man movies, but that men wouldn't dare to watch a chick flick in the same way that there's the assumption that women can wear pants, but men can't wear skirts, that kind of ideology. So aiming for men is assumed to mean aiming for a larger audience, which means that we send pro-masculinity pro-toxic masculinity, really, messaging at everybody. So we tell everybody to emotionally repress, that being overly emotional is disastrous. We have a lot of that really ingrained in the culture of how we make films. And you can tell kind of by assessing your own schema of the world. So your schema is kind of how how you understand the world. What is your ideologies? If you were in a similar situation, what have you done in the past? And you can you, you use your schema to navigate the world. So, and you can get it from films, from books, from life experience. So if you see something happening over and over again, then you start to think that's what's supposed to happen. It's kind of like in um, neurology, fire together, wire together. When right. you start to associate this causes this, or this should cause this, that, that affects what your schema is. And it affects how you conceptualize yourself and your relationship to the world. And we get a lot of tropes that reinforce unhealthy levels of suppression, specifically in men, but also then in women who are watching it and told to identify with the men because of point of view shots. So we get action films, men walking away from like the carnage of battle without even looking back, like that trope of the thing exploding and not even (laughs) turning around. We see the trope of kind of the death of a woman that somebody loves, whether it's a parent or a romantic partner, resurging a desire to fight without tears. And we even saw that then translate to Wonder Woman in the Wonder Woman movie. We mm-hmm. see her so like driven by her, the guy she likes sacrificing himself that she becomes more powerful. It, it's transferred into a pseudo-feminist lens of like women can also be toxically masculine. And they, the characters tend to regularly face emotional, mental, and physical threats without experiencing PTSD or paranoia. And this happens in movies like Harry Potter. This happens in Mar- all, basically all Marvel movies because studios assume that it would be boring to viewers. And you can kind of see that viewers have shown that that's kind of how they feel. So if you were to watch the Iron Man movies like I did, I loved Iron Man. He was my favorite superhero. And in Iron Man 3 we see him struggling with PTSD, which would be a realistic reaction to all of the trauma we see him go through. But people don't like that movie. It is regularly put on because of the fact that it does deal with those things in a more realistic way. And because of that, if you watch later Iron Man movies, we don't see him grappling with it the same way. Right. And when movies tell viewers that they should react with violence in place of compassion, and instead of dealing with it themselves, people end up then repressing, which leads to self-harm, domestic violence, and other emotional explosions, because repression is just not a healthy way to deal with things. But when people are emotional, especially women, they get called hysterical. And that's been kind of linked, especially to women. And so when we see someone being 
quote-unquote overly emotional on screen. We see a character that is actually more of an object without authentic interiority. We don't see why they are having that emotional reaction to things rather than it being like the PTSD example with Iron Man. You usually see someone overreacting and then the logical reaction, the correct reaction in a movie is like, slap them, right? Like I'm sure you've seen that in movies where it's like, and that fixes it, right? Because who has ever had an anxiety attack and not been fixed by a slap, right? We've all been there. It's just the way that people are taught to cope with things is basically push through, repress violence. And you see kind of the deterioration of the interiority of women happening regularly to kind of placate people so that they can see a representation of themselves, but then it's hollow. Even in nuanced films like The Perks of Being a Wallflower, we see the love interest is very hollow, but especially in movies like A Fast and the Furious. So this has been rambling, but to connect these points more directly, men are told that emotions are weak and violence is strong. Everyone is told that, but especially targeted at men. And since men are also told that women are emotional, that means that women are weak because emotions are weak. And that narrative further reinforces the narrative that violence against women by men is somehow normal and natural. And when a woman is violent in a film, it's not taken as seriously as violence by a man, which means that the rape or abuse of a man by a woman rarely gets an appropriate response in film, but then that translates directly to situations that are handled in life. So we have all of these terrible things going on in films handled inappropriately, and it translates to even worse things in our world. Right, because people, they'll do more of what they know is working as far as the box office sales numbers. Super Exactly. Money talks. Like that money, money and awards. <laughs> That's what matters. <laughs> wow. It goes really deep. Um, I feel like a lot of people never get this far in analyzing the things that they, you know, pay 12 bucks to go see on a big screen. And they leave with all these new ideas that they didn't have or yeah, they know. leave with reinforced ideas. And it's it's a shame because sometimes you analyze things and you're like, oh, I can't enjoy this anymore. Like a lot of 1980s rom-coms, it's like, oh, that's really rapey and I'm concerned. Right. And it's sad because it's like, but it's great in so many ways. Or you like rewatching, I think it was Breakfast at Tiffany's with the horrific caricature of an Asian person. It's just like, that's so sad because it's a good movie and that, that landlord is not a necessary part of the film. Why did they have this like person in yellow face doing a really terrible inaccurate representation like there are so many pieces of things that when you dig deeper you're like oh sad this thing I loved is awful right but I do think you can enjoy the things you love more in a more healthy way if you pick them apart because then you can appreciate the parts that are worth loving right because yeah I think that's a really important point to note that liking and appreciating the artistry of a movie or the concept of a movie, it doesn't always have to be all or nothing, but there can be parts that you like, parts that you rather not, yeah. you know, associate with. And then you take That's it how I feel about Gossip what Girl. it is. Yeah. Like Gossip Girl is so problematic, but I love it. I stand it. Everyone should watch it, but also <laughs> Chuck is awful and we should talk about how he was a rapist and then we forgot about it. Like there's lots of things <laughs> that you can appreciate and critique at the same time, just like we should in politics. Like, right, right, right. Got to get into them. Got to get into them. And now for a word from our sponsors. Peanut butter. Don't you love peanut butter? 
Yeah, there's no actual sponsor. <laughs> this is just a little break in the conversation. Um, <laughs> feel free to pause or keep going. Disclaimer, I'm not sponsored by peanut butter. So one of my favorite shows of all time is an animated show from Cartoon Network and Rebecca Sugar called Steven Universe. I love this show so much. <laughs> so the creators put so much thought into the diverse representation in most all senses of the word diverse in the cast and the messages being communicated throughout the show. And among these messages, emotional health and well-being is a really, really strong undercurrent. And so one of the things the show did really well, in my opinion, was start a conversation with a younger audience about managing our emotions effectively and showing that it is possible to become really skilled at doing so. So we talked about this on your show at length with the movie Inside Out, but how have you seen the film industry spark meaningful conversation around mental and emotional health and at times around mental illness and disorders? So I just have to say off the bat that like Steven Universe is a wonderful movie and TV show. I ran a film class last year for my 11 to 14 year olds. And we watched a lot of Steven Universe and talked through it. I think it helps students work through their emotions in a healthy way and teaches people to think about how they think and how they feel, which is huge. Inside Out also teaches that self-regulation and metacognition of thinking about how we think and how we feel and manage ourselves, which is super important. To be mentally healthy, you need to be reflective. That's why people go to therapy. Um, I'm actually hopeful that the perks of being a wallflower specifically has also triggered some productive, reflective, sensitive conversations about domestic violence, sexual abuse, PTSD, triggers, anxiety, and depression. That's a film that I think does a beautiful job of showing us normal, lovable people struggling with a lot. And it normalizes issues that many, many, many people struggle with without dramatizing them and without triggering the audience. It also normalizes asking for help from your friends and getting professional help from doctors. That's the best work that I've seen is the work that encourages therapy. Because I've been lucky enough, I've had a student come to me and ask if I thought it was okay for her to go to therapy or if it was weird. And I think that having something in the mainstream with a movie like Perks of Being a Wallflower saying, this is someone that we love and they needed this and that's okay and that's great, is, is some of the best work to normalize that practice. I think To the Bone also felt like a really non-judgmental, empathetic, realistic portrayal of body dysmorphia and anorexia. Although I do think it romanticized being in a facility to get help. My hope is that things like that romanticization could drive people who should get help to do so. It's really film by film for me, though. As we cast actors who have never had these issues to portray them, it's difficult. Mm. Oh, I almost forgot the best representation of alcoholism that I've seen. It's The Way Back. Um, Ben Affleck himself is an alcoholic, and he does this beautiful job of tackling the disease of alcoholism without acting as if, like, I think there's a trope that if this movie was tropey, it would be this man who's an alcoholic joins as a coach for the basketball team, does a great job, and gets sober mm, by the yeah. sheer force of will, right? But that's not what this movie is. And I think it is based on a real person, might be part of it. I don't actually know if that's true. So whoever's listening, don't quote me on that. But it's, he does a really great job of showing this person who is working through a lot 
and struggling with the disease of alcoholism and having a lot of trouble getting sober and really not getting sober while he does this thing that he loves that is giving him a purpose. But he is driven by being fired and not being able to work with these kids anymore. He, he's driven to go and actually get help in the way that is actually the healthy way people get help by going to rehab, which is a lot more effective than just hoping that you're not an alcoholic anymore. So I think films like that, especially they casted someone who is a recovered alcoholic. Like I think that that is beautiful because I believe as a non-alcoholic, I believe that is probably a lot more realistic. And if I saw that and I felt like I aligned myself with him, I feel like I would end the movie and be like, oh, I probably should just get help. Like there's not something that's just gonna make it stop. And then there's characters that do the opposite, like in the Umbrella Academy with Klaus, that it's just like people are demonizing alcoholics by calling them basically selfish and lazy. So I think it's really beautiful when we see these little pieces of cinema that do a really realistic, beautiful portrayal. I think that the more and more of them that happen and the more intentionally they're made and cast, I think the better our society will be. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I, I think cinema, I think there are two ways to me to affect change. I think there's social and then there's law. So if you're making movies, I think that you should be helping people, not hurting them. Absolutely. That actually, um, that brings to mind, there's a concept in the book Influenced by Robert Cialdini. I think that's how you say his name. And it talks about how people are more inclined to do something because of the likeness of the person that they're seeing do this thing. I guess I, the, the best example I can think of on the spot is I think there's a nonprofit called Girls Who Code. And their, their whole goal is to like have women software engineers show young girls like, hey, you can do this. This is an opportunity for you. This is a career path that you can consider. And then oh, yeah. it's something, there was like some data around like it makes young girls more likely to consider computer science in the future just because they saw someone who looked like them doing that thing. And now they know it's possible. Yeah. Modeling and representation in that's what you, I learned in my master's for teaching are some of the most important things they need to, people need to see somebody else doing the thing to know that they can do the thing. And it's easier to see yourself doing the thing. If that person shares a lot of traits with you. Wow. But, that's so good. Okay. So Throughout social media, all of a sudden, the last few years, as mental health has become more of a buzzword, and now things like having anxiety is kind of the quote-unquote cool thing right now, uh, it's become kind of trendy to make memes about depression, it's hashtag relatable to talk about how much we hate our lives and don't like dealing with emotions and things like that. So personally, I'm not a fan of where this trend is going for a number of reasons. First, I, I like the idea that people are, of course, talking about their mental health and different situations like that's what this podcast is all about but what I worry about one of the things I worry about is this trendiness attracting a crowd which in reality has already arrived um, that'll come in and start commoditizing this mental illness and emotional pain really thinking about the opportunistic crowds you know people who will come in and see oh these people are saying they have anxiety let me sell them a t-shirt that says I have anxiety or um, one thing I saw that was actually terrible it was a Christmas sweater, uh, and it said OCD spelled like vertically, like O, then under it was C, and then D, and then it said obsessive Christmas disorder. I've seen those things. Yeah, there's mm, mm-hmm. like oh my goodness, 
but anyway, yeah. And then <laughs> I also worry about people starting to, you know, fake having poor mental health to start to fit in with this trend. So like, of course, if someone actually is feeling anxiety, feeling depression, that's, you know, something that they should talk about and get out there. But I'm, I'm more thinking about the people who were like, well, I don't really relate to that thing, but everybody else is talking about it. So let me just jump in here and then, you know, kind of possibly spreading misinformation or whatever else that might come with people faking mental illness or things like that. That's something I've been thinking about a lot. I think it's, it's a really hard line because I think, I do think if anxiety and depression isn't as common, it wasn't as common as it is now in the past. I think that it is more, I think it's really, really common. I think both are really common. I also think that you don't want people to wish that they had issues to struggle with. Right. So I, like, I do think it's the same way that I think people love to say like, I'm poor, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's tough because it's like, no, people, people don't have enough money to get food or pay rent. So it's, it's really, I think it's a very difficult line, line to walk in offering representation and normalizing something without letting people commoditize it. But I do like the fact that it's everywhere in some ways. Right. Like, I think that, like, that. I don't know, are you on TikTok? Uh, barely. Okay. So <laughs> there's, a TikTok, the there's a TikTok trend sound. I had to delete TikTok because I love it. <laughs> there's a TikTok trending sound that I loved that was like, don't have depression, don't have depression. And I, I loved it. I would just like sit through and watch videos of people and be like, yes, like relatable because there, I think that there's a lot of camaraderie to be built. Um, but I also think when I am looking through posts, there are so many things that I'm like, you don't have depression. You are struggling with X, Y, Z thing. You don't have anxiety. You're struggling where we're based on the advice people are giving right. where I'm like, this isn't appropriate advice for this thing. And for this group of people. And I think that when people get to the point and they're talking about self-care, like I've seen things where it's like, if you put yourself first, nothing can go wrong. And it's like, no. (laughs) If you become a narcissist, that's bad. Like I think that people get so extreme that we also end up creating all of these other offshoot problems. And you're giving people who actually struggle with something incorrect advice. Or right. you're making them feel bad because they can't function the way that you do because you don't actually struggle with those things. And I think that it, it becomes really difficult to also draw the line because if it's someone like me who does struggle with anxiety, like I will make jokes about it. And I don't think people necessarily know that I like do actually really struggle with anxiety. So it's such a hard thing to be able to talk to somebody else about and gauge what, where they are actually at. Right. But romanticizing depression, especially like suicidalness, is terrifying. Right. That's what I see a lot of. We do not want to promote people staying or becoming depressed. We do not want to promote people dying by suicide. And it's, it's such a fine line to walk between community and destroying lives. Like it's such a fine line. Yeah. And um, I guess tying this back to the lens of cinema and film, do you see any films that are currently coming out right now that are worsening this trend or also in the same way potentially using pain and suffering of people for profit oh my god 13 reasons why is the worst is the Mm. is just the worst i've seen of it because i love that book i loved that book growing up it was when i was 
really struggling with depression, I was like, Jay Asher is a genius. And he has this really accurate, I think, and non-triggering and not black and white rape scene that I think also just is saying just because someone doesn't say no doesn't mean it's not sexual assault. Like, I think that it was so well thought out, that book. And then the move, the TV show is out and they asked for feedback from psychologists and then they ignored it. And honestly, I think it's, it's, a, it's frankly like a, a really triggering and, and somewhat traumatizing TV show to watch. Mm. And it's, it romanticizes suicide and they've tracked, it correlated with a huge spike in suicides in teens. Because modeling, right? We see this girl and everyone reacts how she would want them to, to her suicide. It's perfect, right? Right. And in the book, that's not how it is. In my opinion, in the book, it does not romanticize suicide, but the TV show does. I was so horrified. It was, it's just, they are trying to dramatize things that don't, are already dramatic. You know what I mean? And I think that the way that they deal with those emotions is just awful. They have this inappropriate representation of a school shooting that I think is horrendous. And they talked to the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence. And I worked there and Brady is awesome. They could have helped 13 Reasons Why have a really appropriate representation, but they chose not to. They chose to instead just do it their way. So I think it's there are all of these people that are available to shows like 13 Reasons Why that they actually were in contact with that can be done to make a show not do what they did. Right. And some places are really using those resources and creating beautiful films and beautiful TV shows that really appropriately represent these things. And then they had the producers of 13 Reasons Why unfortunately go down the exact wrong path. Yeah, it's so important that they actually listen. Like, I understand the idea of creative license and taking creative liberties, like they did in Inside Out, but like the liberties in Inside Out that were taken were not as consequential as in 13 Reasons Why. And I guess it's a matter of what are they thinking is going to be the outcome of this of this work of art like what is the effect that they want to have on people and it seems like either they didn't think about it or they didn't care enough to not do what they did yeah they know that that's how they'll make money and unfortunately we don't really have a structure that stops that systemically right. wow this has been a lot but this has been a really good conversation i do have one final question for you the last question is do you like peanut butter and jelly if yes Thank you. If not, why not? So I will eat peanut butter and jelly, but I think, I think jelly's like fine. It's fine. Peanut butter is beautiful. Peanut butter is like this amazing thing that exists. Jelly is like fine. So I, I think I like to cut the jelly. I like to have like cinnamon raisin toast, or I'm also good doing like a peanut butter fluff sandwich. You know, I'll do just peanut butter sometimes. Oh, that was a thing in middle school. Peanut butter and fluff. Uh, bless mm. it bless its heart the straight sugar marshmallow <laughs> whipped marshmallows <laughs> yes give me that sugar rush get me through the day amazing amazing so all right i think that's about it for this episode so for you the listener art represents ideas and expresses emotions in ways that traditional conversation often cannot the key connection here is that the art film in this case of this episode can give you the vocabulary, the context, and the awareness to start a more informed and empathetic conversation. Cinema plays a huge part in the popular culture of many places. 
the way that it represents mental and emotional health carries a great deal of weight in the general consciousness of the public. Many people don't have interest or experience with autism, so perhaps their only knowledge of autism is from a movie like Rain Man. Or maybe they don't know much about schizophrenia, but they've seen it represented in A Beautiful Mind, for example. Maybe they want to talk about their emotions, but all the heroes and heroines they see on the big screen teach them to compartmentalize it and only use it when they need to fight someone and save the world. Cinema leaves room for conversation, but it also shapes that future conversation that can be either positive or negative in redefining the narratives around mental and emotional health. So Audrey, do you have any closing thoughts? Yes, I want to give us some nuggets of hope because I love movies, <laughs> even though I criticize them all the time for fun. And I think that even though these film companies are distant from most of us, we can shape the way that films are made with our dollars and with what we support and what we tweet about and how we talk about things. Like it really does, we can change the world. We do have that power now, I think, especially with social media. But we can also control our own understandings of ourselves and each other by making sure that we critique what we consume. So you watch things, don't just be like, oh, I love this character, I love this show, but take the pieces you love and criticize the pieces that you don't. Because if you can be compassionate with yourself and compassionate with the people who make these things and give them the grace to be like, this was imperfect, I can acknowledge it's imperfect, then you can love it the way that you would love a person with all of its flaws and not take any of the toxicity in. Exactly, exactly. Well, thanks so much for joining me on the More Human podcast today. Um, okay, so for the listeners who are interested in diving into more of the, your content and the Lights Camera Analysis podcast, where can they go to find you? Yeah, so I'm on most, most platforms. We are most popular on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, and on, what is the other one? Apple Podcasts, the main one that we use. Oops. We are also on Twitter as Camera Analysis, on Instagram as Lights Camera Analysis. And yeah, keep your eyes out. We are coming out with lots of new stuff because I can never stop watching movies. So <laughs> Sounds great. Well, thank you again for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And if you would love to see a little bit more of us and our banter and our talk about films, you can catch us on the Lights, Camera Analysis podcast talking about Inside Out. Absolutely, absolutely. Very thoughtful podcast and a good listen for anyone. Elton goes into detail to explain a topic that might give you a new perspective or teach you something completely new. Either way, strongly suggest taking a listen. And that review comes from RJAJTJ backslash. <laughs> I love that. That's a key and peel reference. Um, well, whoever you are, RJAJTJ backslash, thank you so much for being the listener of the week this week and for your review. Like I said last week, it goes a long way in helping the podcast reach new people and also for the people looking for social proof before they invest their time in listening to this podcast, it lets them know that they're in the right place. That's it for episode six. Huge thanks again to Audrey for joining me on the podcast today. Make sure you go check out her podcast, Lights, Camera, Analysis, and show her some love. Let her know if you appreciated the episode, if you appreciated her insights or anything like that. I know that she would definitely appreciate it. So that's all I got. From Winterheart Studios, I'm Elgin Davis, and this 
is the More Human Podcast. See you next time.